You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, February 15th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. On the day after Valentine's Day. How's everyone? Great. How's everyone doing? And only three days after Darwin Day. I was talking to uh, talking to my niece earlier tonight, and I said, you know, I I actually think that nobody gets like more of anything on Valentine's Day other than annoyed. Like, does anyone actually enjoy Valentine's Day for Jeez, real? You're such a hopeless romantic. You enjoy it so <laughs> long as you don't buy into any of the hype. So long as you ignore it, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I always have a nice Valentine's Day because most of my days are nice. So. See that? Every day's Valentine's Day. Yeah, you know anyway. what I'm saying, though. Is anyone like looking forward to Valentine's Day? Or I Hallmark. think it's just a, a lot of high <laughs> expectations and a lot of disappointment. Yeah, you're right. It's total BS. That's what I'm saying. If you just ignore it, you'll be fine. Yeah, it's, but you see, Rebecca, when you're a guy, you can't. But no, Jay, when you're me and everyone else who hates Valentine's Day but would rather everyone just shut up about it like the worst thing about Valentine's Day is all the people who complain about Valentine's Day to me it's a thousand <laughs> times worse than the people who like Valentine's Day get the hint Jay wow <laughs> just saying <laughs> just saying it gets but am old. I wrong no I'm, I'm saying I agree with you alright thank you it's uh, it's ingrained in us when we're young you know in school they use it as an excuse not to teach math or science or something right because mm-hmm. all it's about handing out candy to kids and st- you know it's so. a hallmark conspiracy yeah can, yeah guys pretend that, that they that they're interested or like it and all they're doing is just hoping that they don't get yelled at right i mean that's pretty much what it boils down to <laughs> it's a high stakes holiday is that what you're saying jay <laughs> i mean i guess it is for guys who aren't in relationships where they can actually talk to their partner like it's never a problem for whoever i'm seeing because we talk about it beforehand do you want to do anything for valentine's day no okay no, that's true. My, my, my wife and I had a similar conversation. Yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, we don't need to buy into it. It's also, it's a really, really bad time to either go to a restaurant, forget it. Oh, yeah. Or what you can do, buy flowers at, at, you know, totally elevated prices. You know, <laughs> exactly. buy, buy them some other time. When yeah, it's like not the day after when it's super cheap. Yeah, exactly. Because I'll do it for my wife. I'll buy her flowers on non-occasions right? yeah and just yeah. just because and the and she loves it absolutely loves that and in fact i think she appreciates it more than when it's kind of when i have a cue otherwise like for a holiday to when give it's it, dictated right. by society her. exactly yeah. right hey you know what else is this week well what what could well, it be on saturday february 18th which is the date that i think most people listen to this show it is the anniversary of the discovery of pluto Pluto, Pluto, which you might you might remember as a planet, but you'd be wrong. It is, uh, of course, famously no longer considered a planet. Um, although it sort of got upgraded because now instead of being like the tiniest, stupidest planet, it's now the second most massive dwarf planet in the solar system. <laughs> so it's not even it's not even the biggest dwarf planet. It's shut up, Steve. Let it let Pluto have this. <laughs> Most okay. massive dwarf planet is that like jumbo shrimp? <laughs> right. It it is a little bit like being the world's tallest little person, but you know, let let Pluto celebrate this. Um, <laughs> so yes, Pluto was discovered in 1930 by Clyde Tombaugh, 
And until it was declared not a planet, it was the only planet to be found by an American astronomer. Uh, which happened after three decades of work at the Lowell Observatory, but Tom Ball himself didn't join the search until April of 1929. So he only had to spend a year looking for it, and he got all of the accolades. If by all the accolades you mean no one actually remembers his name outside of lovers of Some science history. pissed-off astronomers at that observatory. Yeah, right. So he practically just walked in there, took one look in the glass, relatively speaking, and said, hey, what's that? Yeah. Look at that. I think that's the... There it is. <laughs> and they're all like, ah. Yep. Yeah. I hope it becomes a dwarf planet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that explains everything, actually. It's just a lingering rivalry that forced them to demote Pluto. Well, let's move on to some news items. Bob, I'm fascinated to hear you tell us about the science of ponytails. <laughs> um, yeah, this one was a lot of fun. I really love it when physics illuminates these common everyday things that you may, you may never guess could have interesting properties. But recently, researchers for the first time have described mathematically the ponytail, which allows them to predict what kind of shape it will have, which apparently has been something that's been very difficult to do up until now. This seemingly mundane advance could actually lead to advances in industries as diverse as textiles, hair products, and, of course, computer animation. So, yes, guys, it seems that we have finally figured out the elusive ponytail shape equation. Doesn't that sound like an episode title for The Big Bang Theory? The episode, yeah, the ponytail <laughs> but, uh, shape equation. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I find but, this uh, about as interesting as Valentine's Day. <laughs> oh, God, much more, much Maybe. more. But, you know, it's really not as goofy as it sounds. And why? Because it's physics. Duh. But Raymond Goldstein, uh, check this out. I've never heard this before. This Raymond Goldstein is the Schlumberger Professor of Complex Physical Systems at uh, in Cambridge. Schlumberger? What, what does that mean? Schlumberger. I've never heard that name? before, but it sounds cool. I'm so, guessing um, someone's yeah, the guy who donated that wow. the money for the chair. <laughs> Schlumberg. That's what you do. Okay. If you want the Bob Novella um, chair of whatever physics, you donate $2 million to a university, and then they will create a chair in your name. Okay. Maybe I'll do that one day. But uh, you just buy a chair and sneak it in. <laughs> I won't even notice. A $2 million chair. <laughs> do, 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 do. My chair. So Goldstein said, to be able to reduce this problem to a very simple mathematical form, which speaks immediately to the way in which the random curliness of hair swells a ponytail, is deeply satisfying. Physicists aim to find simplicity out of complexity, and this is a case in point. So how do they do it? So what th- th- what this British team of researchers did was to take samples of real hair switches that you can buy uh, commercially in lots of different places, and they removed like a, a bunch of random sample hairs, and they – for each individual hair, they measured different things like the, the curvature, the random curvature of the hair, uh, which of course is known as curliness. And they then, what they did is they took all this hair and they made a bunch of ponytails with it and they documented their average shape. So, but you, so using this data, they were able to put together what's called, um, the equation of state, which basically balance the individual forces that determine the ponytail shape, such as gravity and stiffness, and something that they call swelling pressure that creates that's created by the curliness itself. And the coolest thing about this whole this this quantity is that they, they devised a mathematical quantity called the Rapunzel number, which I thought was very clever. So how awesome was that? I love when scientists do that. To give you an idea, though, of what this number is, because they really didn't go into much detail about what this Rapunzel number was, but they gave some examples of what it could be used for. If you had a sample of hair that's short and springy, 
and has a very low Rapunzel number, then the ponytail will kind of like fan outwards. But if you had longer hair with a higher Rapunzel number, then it kind of just hangs down because uh, gravity kind of like is the dominant force there. So, so with this equation that they created with this Rapunzel number, they were able to predict the shapes of various ponytails. What they did was they would, um, they would take these measurements and create the equations. Then they would cut the, they would cut the hair and run the equation again and predict what it would look like and then compare it to what it really looked like. And it matched up. Bam. One, one to one. They, they really nailed it. And you may think that's cool, but so what? How is this going to affect my life? Right? Jay, you're thinking that, right? I thought that f***ing 10 minutes ago. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, boy. So, so well, by understanding how ponytails work, you're really understanding the structure of natural material that's composed of random fibers, which is really all over the place. So this could lead to insights into, into things like wool and fur, which have you know entire industries built around them. But more interesting for me was the benefit for animation and computer graphic industries. Um, a lot of the research I read kept going on about how, how hair and fur has always been very difficult to portray realistically. And, uh, but in much of the research I did, I just echoed the sentiment over and over. And, you know, maybe I don't have enough of a trained eye, but it's, I think that they've pretty much nailed hair and fur. I mean, some of the latest, um, computer generated movies I've seen, they really, it just seems so natural good. and fluid. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I've, I remember looking at like the, remember the daughter in The Incredibles with her, with her thin black hair and how mm-hmm. it would move. And how about the, and the monster, the furry monsters and Monsters Inc.? I mean, mm-hmm. they made some great breakthroughs, uh, in uh, in hair and fur for those movies, and uh, you know I'm sure there's little subtle things that they could tweak, but I I, I that kind of struck me as well. I thought they really na- kind of nailed that stuff. So I'll end this with just one more quote from Goldstein that was kind of funny. He said, "Somehow a bunch of balding middle-aged men sitting around a table came up with the idea that the ponytail was the embodiment of all this interesting physics." Mm-hmm. So kind of a fun fun story. Yeah, it is cool. cool. Yeah, sometimes it's amazing how complicated the science is behind something so simple, like why do ponytails fan out. Uh, the next item I want to cover is about online surveys. Have you guys ever taken an online survey? Sure. I always avoid them. Almost always. I used to do it for money. Is that right? <laughs> when, I was in, when I was in college, there were websites that would uh, arrange all these surveys. You could just take a whole bunch of them in a row and get like 50 cents a survey. <laughs> So you wow. would do like a thousand yeah. surveys. I... Yeah, well, you just, you know, you'd sit down with your cheap beer and your, <laughs> you know, microwave dinner. Would you, tr- would you try to answer them accurately, Rebecca, or would you just click on whatever and just click, click, click? Uh, depending on my mood. Mostly accurately. Because, right. you know, I, they're paying me 50 whole cents. I'm Pretty good incentive. I'm going to give it yeah. my all. Yeah. 50 cents. Yeah. I've taken surveys that, or about products that I've purchased. I send you like a customer survey about the quality of the product and stuff like that, but nothing like Rebecca. Like I'm not answering questions about like, you know, do, you know how fertile am I and stuff yeah. like that. That's Yeah, that's pretty much all I answered questions about. Well, what prompted this news item was uh, an article about, um, do you guys remember the issue of whether or not to teach alternative medicine in universities and medical schools? It's come up in primarily in Australia recently. And a new group, Friends of Science and Medicine, formed uh, with – now they have over 400 professionals essentially protesting the teaching of pseudoscience and nonsense in universities as if there was real medical science. And the uh, defenders of, of nonsense, or you can call it alternative medicine, have been 
uh, very active in trying to defend you know their position and attack you know the, the, the their critics uh, and there was an article about this issue uh, recently and the art- at the end of the article was a typical dumb survey you know an online survey uh, which I think is is probably a good gimmick to to draw people to an article or, or to a website. But the article simply said, do you think universities should teach alternative medicine? At one point, the number of votes uh, dramatically increased and was massively against teaching alternative medicine in universities. And the final tally was um, something like 70% no and 30% yes after 877,000 votes. So now... The alternative medicine proponents, or some of them, are griping about the fact that the that the online survey was hacked or was gamed. They were all set to use the numbers to you know to show how popular alternative medicine is. Now they're afraid that the critics are going to use it to show how that it's not that popular. Um, so two issues were brought up. The first one I think we could dispense with very quickly. This whole thing is an exercise in the argument from popularity, which you know I argue mm-hmm. is about the most irrelevant thing for this particular issue, because the whole issue here is that shouldn't universities be promoting rigorous standards of science and scholarship despite public opinion? So you almost have to not care what the public opinion is about the issue, right, when the whole point is that they should not be going along with what's popular. They should be doing what's intellectually correct, right? But the other issue is uh, is about the reliability of online polls, of online polling, which you know we've talked about the the some of the foibles of surveys in general, and online surveys or online polls are even worse than um, than a scientific survey because they're, you know they're not done scientifically, so they are in fact worthless no matter what. So complaining about a worthless survey being rendered worthless because somebody broke it or gamed it is incredibly naive, um, right? So you guys are familiar with the fact that uh, people who read P.Z. Meyer's blog, Ferengula, he will often, whenever he, you know, anyone points him to one of these online surveys that has anything to do with science or skepticism or, or religion, mm-hmm. he will unleash his readers to say, you know, go and break the poll. Because just by directing his readers to that poll, it completely overwhelms the results. But I think there's, it's, there's some interesting issues here, you know, because if you really break it down, what you're asking is, well, what are you measuring? What is the poll measuring? It purports to measure public opinion on the question asked. But it, it's, it's actually not yeah, right. measuring that, or at least... The influence of public opinion on the results of the poll are usually um, overwhelmed by other things that are being measured. For example, you're measuring the ability of communities to marshal their online followers or their online community to influence the poll. In fact, in the very article where you know the proponents of alternative medicine were complaining about this, they they admitted that they they they. Well, let me read you a quote. This is from Justin Howden. That he said that in an email sent by the Complementary Healthcare Council of Australia to members of its mailing list urging them to vote, 
The organization's consumer affairs director, Justin Howden, noted that the no vote was streets ahead and said, we need to fight fire with fire. So they were admitting that they were trying to break the poll, too, by directing their members to, mm-hmm. to vote a certain way, and they just lost. So, in fact, you're not really measuring public opinion with these polls. Even, even if someone doesn't hack into it and, and literally rig the results, it, it still is completely worthless. The nature of polls in general, I think, is worthless. And it doesn't, ma- it doesn't really matter what the topic is because how do you even know who, how, how the question gets framed? And does the person really understand what, he, what, they're, what they're answering, right? There could be different interpretations if, for 10 different people of the same question. So yeah, but they I, have, are you I, saying I, they have no utility? You can't get any, any valuable data from a poll? I think, it's, I, think you have to, I think you have to structure it really, really tightly. Right, so that you got to cut down that level of ambiguity, and there's, I think, a big range of ambiguity in the majority of polls. We do have to at least break "quote unquote" polls or surveys up into two broad categories: scientific surveys and the non-scientific ones, like an online poll. Um, they're not scientific because there is there's no way to control for the population that right. is answering it, so you don't know what it's representative of. You can't extrapolate from it to anything because you have no knowledge about it. It's self-selective and quirky, right? So just it, it, that those are completely worthless. For a scientific survey, I wouldn't call a scientific survey useless. I think they run the, the spectrum from useless to reasonable, depending on, as you say, Evan, how rigorously you control for potential biases, and there's many ways to bias a survey, either consciously or unconsciously, by how you frame the question, whether you're asking the question in a positive way or a negative way, are are you linking it to anything, by what question you asked before the question that you're you're focusing on. Um, You know, we've discussed this in the context of, uh, you know, asking people if they quote-unquote believe in evolution. Well, it depends on what other questions you're asking them and how the question is exactly framed. If you, you know, state it as in opposition to belief in God, where you're sort of assuming that the two things are in conflict, then that drives way down the number of people who are willing to say they believe in evolution. If if by clicking that box they also have to be saying, I don't believe in God, well then, you know, anyone who believes in God is, is going to be less likely to do that. Um, if, whereas if you decouple those things or really try to isolate them, more people will say that they accept that evolution happened. So it's, um, it, it's, it, it is a science. It's very difficult. And you, know, you have to make decisions about how you're defining things and how you're, de- how you're selecting your population. Is it representative? Uh, and, and there's all kinds of ways that it could be biased. And if you, don't, if you do a bad job, you end up with a misleading or worthless survey. But th- and that's within surveys that are trying to be scientific. Unscientific surveys are completely worthless. And th- it was just ridiculous to see people fighting over the results of an online survey as if, as if at any point it could possibly mean anything. I'm just really pleased with the headline on the piece. Vote on alternative medicine falls victim to dark arts of the Internet. No, it falls victim to the inherent nature of online polls. It's magic, Steve. (laughs) It's the dark arts. (laughs) It's magic. (laughs) Evil magic. Witchcraft. Yeah. You're not only saying don't trust the results, you're saying don't even bother joining one. Well, I mean, if you want to do it for fun, I don't care. But I mean, nobody should take those results seriously. So don't. One of the articles about this topic, there was a poll. 
Poll. <laughs> that's a do you think <laughs> online polls are reliable? That's awesome. Yes that's or no. The best poll I've heard. And that poll was broken. Somebody gained that poll and distorted the results. It's turtles uh, all the way down. Yeah, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> right. All right. All right. Let's move on. Jay, you have to tell us about the latest battery breakthrough. Once again, the, the, we have a game changer. <laughs> That's going to completely alter battery technology as we know it. Sweet. Maybe. Finally. <laughs> I, uh, I find that I'm really interested whenever these stories come out about new battery technology because, we, first of all, we've reported on them a lot. We see them a lot. And they promise a lot. But typically as you, you read the details and you find out where they are in the research and you know, what progress do they think that they're going to make versus what have they made during the recent studies and whatnot. You get to the point where you're like, it's never going to happen, you know, but they promise all these really cool ideas, but it just doesn't manifest because batteries are so incredibly hard to, to, to make and to improve upon. We only make incremental improvements on batteries. So as I read this and give you a little bit of information about this, you know, you know, yet another company with yet another really interesting battery idea. Um, just understand that it's probably not going to go anywhere. It's just part of the, the hundreds of, of companies out there, if, if that, not thousands of companies that are working on improving battery technology. So this particular company called uh, BAE Systems is working on something I've never heard of before as far as battery technology goes. They're making uh, a battery that actually would act as part of the structure of whatever it is that they're building. So as an example, if, um, if you're building, say, um, some type of aircraft, the battery of the airplane could actually be the wing or the fuselage. It's, it's incorporated into the structure of, of the actual object that they're building or maybe components of that. Something on the wing. So, yeah, there's something. So it's... It's a great idea, and they're saying that they want to build it out of carbon fiber. And, the, and right now, they have they have prototypes. They have they have something that is roughly giving about one tenth of the of the power of a, of a of a top end battery right now. Which you know that's not really usable. It's not something that we would want to develop or, or work with now. They have to improve this technology, but you know, they have some serious hurdles that they have to be able to cross before we would even be able to get there. And then you know when, when you think about it. What would you do with this battery when it runs out? You know, you'd have to recharge it. Well, then, if it's part of the structure, then how many times can you recharge it before it would actually need to be replaced? And all these concerns come in. Battery technology is very complicated because in order to have a useful battery, it needs to have a suite of features all at the same time. It needs to be fairly lightweight. needs to be able to be charged and discharged fairly quickly. It needs to have a usable capacity. It needs to have... A, uh, a many many di- uh, charge discharge cycles. Uh, it, sh- it can't use any really expensive, really toxic, or really rare components. Um, and it needs again needs to do all of these things at the same time. And if any one of them is really bad, it's a deal breaker. You can be really good in all of the other categories, but one that's very very bad. You know, if it takes a month to recharge it, it's not going to be in your cell phone. If it has, you know. 
Einsteinium right. components that are whatever, something really rare that's going, <laughs> that's going to cost $1,000 an ounce, you're not going to see it in your cell phone or your car. If the capacity is very low or it weighs, it weighs a, a ton, you know, any one of those things that's off, and, and it's a deal breaker. So I think and it, it, when we read these news items, they're always focusing on one or two of the positives. Oh, we found whatever, a battery that has a huge capacity or that has a huge recharge rate or whatever. And then there's always one of the other features is really poor. And then we're being told that, but the developers or the engineers are confident that they'll be able to get this feature up to the range where it needs to be. But then we never hear from it again. Yeah, that's actually the reason why they evaporate and you never yeah, hear about them again is because they couldn't get past that, that hurdle or, or a couple of those hurdles. Yeah, it's, that Steve it's non-trivial. You know, like in this case, good, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. I wouldn't say it's a good idea. It's an interesting idea to have a structural battery. But the storage capacity is one-tenth of like a lithium-ion battery. So, you know, is it really useful then for a lot, really limits its, its utility for, for most, if not, for many, if not most applications. Um, but what, well, Steve, what would you say? It was 1%? One, 1%, one tenth, one tenth of a lithium-ion battery. So if you think about like your cell phone, if the cell phone itself is a battery, okay. But if it's got to weigh 10 times as much as... Um, and actually, I don't, know, I don't know if it's one-tenth by weight, but, you know, let's say it's got to be – you have to have 10 times as much of it as the, the battery mm. inside the cell phone. I'm not sh- I don't know. We have to do the calculation. Would that actually be an advantage or not? You'd, you'd have to have a belt or something you wear while your phone kind of has a umbilical cord to it, some, maybe something like that. <laughs> what? I don't know. Well, right. You know, if you, have to, if, if you need 10 – that's for argument's sake – 10 times the weight or 10 times the surface area, whatever you're going to call it. Right, you'd have to wear a harness. Well, it becomes pointless. Well, I think you rather have point. just. Yeah, I think the point to this technology is to actually use the space that we typically use for for construction construction material, or um, you know infrastructure material, to actually use that as part of the battery, so you have more space, or the or the overall object could be lighter. And I I don't think it's a bad a bad idea. I mean, you never know, Steve. That's one of the things about science. You just don't know. What's going to strike and what's not going to strike, and this could be one of those things where you know it could it could end up leading to something else. But I I think the idea is is very clever, and it seems like they have they've gotten somewhere with it. Yeah. And, you know, like all those other companies, you know, they need to push forward and see if they can get over those hurdles or, or whatnot. But I, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you guys: if they were able to do this, what applications do you think? Other than the most obvious, what what applications would you think we we could use to incorporate batteries into the structure of things? Well, I mean that does bring up the question, you know, if if the if it's part of the structure and then the battery wears out and you need to replace it, then you're in the position of not only having to replace the battery but a key piece of structure. So anything like that again could really limit its utility. Things that would have a large amount or surface area of this like carbon fiber structural element so that all of that could be a battery, then that would that would make it more useful. Right? So like the, one of the things they were talking about is an electric car where the whole body frame is a battery. Maybe it'd be segmented though, like a you know, the rear right side fender or something is one part of the battery and as parts go you replace just parts at a time, maybe something like that. That's interesting, Evan. I didn't think about that. Maybe, yeah, you do piece it out where they're accessible parts of the structure and then you're not, you know, it's not like you're having to take the frame of the car out as the battery. That would be prohibitive. But, yeah, I could see that. 
And guys, don't forget that conventional batteries will never have the energy density of hydrocarbons. I mean, thermo, you got to, if you look at thermodynamics, I mean, there's fundamental limitations there that you're, I mean, that you're not going to surpass unless we come up with some t- type of battery technology that is completely different than, than lead acid, yeah. lithium ion. We are just not going to get there. And it's the laws of physics says, sorry, you, yeah, you ultimately you can create cool batteries, but it, you're not going to beat hydrocarbons, at least with the conventional battery technology that we have. Well, changing gears a little bit, have you guys heard about the video of a mammoth walking across a river or a lake? Heard it. Oh, I yeah. Just watched it's, it. It's hard not to. It's everywhere. <laughs> what do you think Very about exciting. The scientists have finally cloned a baby mammoth. Yeah. And next <laughs> yeah. thing you know, they'll be strapping, strapping a jetpack to its back. That's right. We can <laughs> only hope. And released it into the wild. Release the mammoth. It's the best way to see if it worked. <laughs> yeah, this one's been making the round. It's, a, it's a, uh, of course, a blurry video at that perfect distance that you can't quite make out what it is. But it has a sort of suggestive form of a, a small, either a dwarf or a baby mammoth, walking across a. a, a uh, it's like a forest. Shallow. Yeah, river. it's a shallow body of water. It seemed to be struggling a little bit. It seemed like the the current was. He was trying to be careful. Yeah. And moving very slowly. This is one of those videos where I don't think. I mean, I do think that the uh, the netiverse is getting a little bit more savvy with this sort of thing. Other than like the hardcore cranks. I think probably most people saw this and realized that's probably not an actual mammoth. And there's you know there's always a couple of ways that you could explain these videos. You know, so again, first of all, it's unnecessarily blurry, right? I mean, your 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 cell phone could take a better video than what we're seeing. <laughs> that's true. We're also only seeing a very small piece of the video. We're seeing just you know just from the right distance and a right angle where. You could it could be suggestive of a mammoth, but you wonder, you know, what, why the person taking it didn't zoom in a little bit, or you know, try to focus. Or actually get closer, get a little closer. Or get closer. Yeah, what, I mean, yeah. What was what was the footage happening right before he turned? Yeah, right to after. Reveal this thing. Right, the, it's only a fifteen second yeah. clip or so. Right, where's the stuff before where's and after? Yeah, plus. Yeah. There's lots of there's other red flags. There was the claim that they they found some of the mammoth hairs on the ground after it had exited the stream, and they they claimed they brought it to a lab and they compared it to huh. a real bona fide mammoth hair, and they said that it was a match. and And that was such a red flag for one one key reason was that they didn't even mention the name of the lab. To me, that was a very critical bit of information. You would think that. Steve, you're talking about people being savvy. You would think in these days of all these, you know, Bigfoot sightings and Nessie sightings that that before going public, you would say, "All right, I got to get my ducks in the row, even a little bit." And they didn't. I mean, I would I would have bam, bam, bam. I would say, "Here's the lab. Here's what they said. Here's the report." And the other the other big thing that really got me is, I mean, you've got this huge exclusive, and you're going to give it to the Sun. I mean, that's that's who you give that's who you give it to. That inspires zero confidence in me. Game over just from that alone. Sorry. No. National Enquirer didn't want it, so <laughs> the son took it. You know, Bob, even if they went to the extreme that you were saying where they tried to, to button up all those holes and everything, I, I think their goal was just to get some publicity. You know, getting on the sun was probably a lofty goal for them that they wanted. Anything bigger than that would, would probably be almost no, impossible. No, it's not bad. They find a, you know, an outlet with no in- integrity whatsoever. Of course, and that's, that's, my, and that's my point. That That's a red flag that is it this big klaxon that's going off, wah, 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 yeah. this is a hoax, this is a hoax, and that's just one of them. 
Yeah, there's, there was no provenance of the video. There were, it's only a very short piece of video. It's again, the, the quality is perfect for mystery mongering, but not for actually figuring out what's on it. If it if it wasn't a hoax, it's doing a damn good job of imitating a hoax. Well, uh, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> it looks like a duck. It was a hoax. <laughs> what? Yes. Shocked. Oh, I'm so shocked. sorry to break this to you all. How do you know? Are shocked. Uh, were you well, there? The internet knows because the original videographer came forward and offered uh. the original video. So now we can see what happened before, during, and after the quote-unquote woolly mammoth crossed the river. And surprise of all surprises, guess uh, guess what happened? Ab- <sighs> absolutely nothing. The, <laughs> the video shows... It's the exact same shot. You know, it's the same river. It's the same tree line. It's clearly mm-hmm. the same video, yet there is no mammoth walking across the screen. Yeah. And you can you can even see that it's at the correct part of the video. The video he submitted is four and a half minutes long, and, you know, you can match it up to the video of the supposed woolly mammoth by looking at the way the waves are cresting and everything. And sure enough, there is no... No animal at all in the in the original footage. Not an invisible mammoth. Maybe? It could be. That's actually a good point that has yet to be uh, investigated. Invisible That's mammoth. That's right. Like the invisible dragon in my garage. Mm. Ha. Uh, the the videographer is Ludovic Petho. I think is maybe Petho. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it was B roll for a project he's working on. Yeah, it's just uh, just a nice shot of a river scene that he took while he was on a backpacking trip through Russia. He's working on a project about his grandfather's escape from a Siberian POW camp. And he uploaded this footage to YouTube back in July of 2011. So that so so we know for 100% pretty much it's a hoax because we have the the source video. But Indeed. but he still had to superimpose a video of an animal walking across the river onto that background. It could be CG, but a lot of people, before even the the hoax data that you just said was revealed, suspected that it actually was a video of a bear with a fish in its mouth. And I still think that's probably what it is. I think the guy took a video of a bear mm-hmm. with a fish in its mouth, superimposed it over this static video to put it into a different context, and it's blurred it out enough so that the fish can kind of look like a trunk. I think he might have even slowed it down to give it a more lumbering kind of look to it. Mm. And, but, it, you know, if you look at it, it and if you so if if you if you're looking at the video with the is this a mammoth you know stamped on top of it then the the suggestion can make you yeah it look kind of looks like a mammoth that's cool but I I showed for example the video to my 12 year old daughter without telling her anything about what it was I said what do you think that that is and she Bigfoot. she said it, it's a bear no. like like why are it's you asking that's so obviously a the bear bears the bears, the bears. With the fish, and then when you think when you think bear with a fish in its mouth, that's exactly what it looks like. So there's a bit of suggestibility going on, but I think that, uh, and a lot of people pointed out that the the trunk slash fish is a different color than the rest of the animal. Doesn't sway like yeah, a trunk, it's, right? It's kind of just hanging there, limp, silvery in color. It's, you know, it's a bit. So we have to kind of uh, call upon Occam's razor to help us out. I think at if, that point. if we didn't have the proof of hoax, but we do have that. So now. 
Right. You know, it was just a matter of how was it hoaxed is really the only question. Right. Sort of the technical details right. that were used to create it, but not what is it. So, alas, no baby mammoth. Right. But this is now the second hoax that I can think of that we talked about on the show that was uncovered because the source image was was found on the internet somewhere. You, you got to burn that stuff. Yeah, but they're just Bob. They're pulling it off of the internet. It's somebody yeah. else's picture or somebody else's video. That's on. Just, oh, I thought he actually filmed it himself. No, it was somebody else. He pulled it. Somebody else's no, video else. that he pulled off well, of yeah. YouTube. That's his problem. Yeah, Stephen. And you also said that he might have even shot this video of the bear. He probably pulled that from yeah. somewhere else. Yeah, too, I doubt he actually the did any work to- himself. Otherwise, he would have just done CGI because CGI would have looked way better and probably been easier than to go out and find a bear to videotape. Yeah, so it's not like the uh, the fellow who put this video out there, Michael Cohen, has a history of this sort of behavior. Probably not, no. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. It's the first no, time. It's a one-off. Yeah. Oh, Oh, wait. Oh, no. Really? <laughs> yeah, apparently he does, but, uh, you know. I like his, uh, his, his picture of an alien, which is just a picture of some kids in Africa somewhere. And if you look way, way in the background, there's a couple of blobs that are not even actually connected to each other. But if you use your imagination, the, you know, one blob could be the head and the other blob could be the body of a little gray alien. That's just all pareidolia. But I think this guy, you know, he gives all the hallmarks of just trying you know, trying to profiteer on this sort of thing you know again again not exactly a reliable reliable source no i think we blew this case wide open case of the baby mammoth. <laughs> good job team <laughs> so no but still no mammoths with jetpacks we're still at square one sad all right quick question guys so what happens to the publisher of that video what happens to the guy that made the claim he goes on to make another one in a year or so yep. yeah people for- we wait for the next people one forget about it Evan, you know what time it is. Who's that noisy time? Yep. Let us play last week's Who's That Noisy. Remember, we were looking for a theme for last week's Who's That Noisy. And here we go. You know, if you get to be very successful, there's usually some point where you just happen to be lucky. Yeah, I think that people don't realize that it's all about hard work. Ladies and gentlemen and fellow New Yorkers. So who do we have there? Did you guys recognize any of those voices? No. Nope. None of them? <laughs> I really didn't. Mick Jagger was the first voice. We all know who Mick Jagger is. Yeah, yes. he's the mayor of New York, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think he was in the Beatles. Here's the next voice, right? Now, Victoria Beckham, right? You know, you know who she is? Oh, God. Is yeah, I don't know her name. voice, though. People don't Posh! That it's all about hard work. Lady. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And the last voice... The tricky one, the one that kind of threw a lot of people. This is the former governor of the state of New York, David Patterson. Uh, Gentlemen and uh, fellow New Yorkers. Now, what could these three people possibly, possibly all have in common that would make them a theme for a Who's That Noisy segment? They're all full of it. They're all full of it in some specific way. Exactly. These, these three famous people in their own right are all Kabbalah. Admirers, oh, God. Uh, yeah, we talked wearers. about David Patterson and his little string. Yeah, so you have a couple of uh, entertainers there, and the governor, former governor of New York, which is uh, an interesting combination. Nope, but they all have worn the red string of Kabbalah, which is you know supposed to ward off misfortune and ward off the evil eye. Didn't work mm. for Patterson. Well, we had a winner, 
Someone did put it all together. Uh, someone by the name of T. Rynock mm-hmm. from the message boards. I think this might have been his first post. So congratulations. Mm, wow. Congratulations. Good job, yes. T. Rynock. Yeah, that's well really done, great. Well done, T. Rynock. Uh, and what do you have for this week? What stunning, challenging, amazing, noisy did you put together for our listeners this week, Evan? Today, this week, we have the classic version of Who's That Noisy? A classic. Who's That Noisy? It's a classic. Here we go. Wow. Mm. It, it's a crypt opening and a, with a zombie inside. What Good the, one. What the heck was that? Yeah, right? It's <laughs> a Halloween soundtrack. <laughs> I borrowed it from Bob, yes. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. Go ahead and give us your guesses. Whether you think they're right or not, we'd like to hear from you. Info at theskepticsguide.org, sguforums.com. Any way you want to contact us, let us know what you think. Give us a guess, and good luck to everyone. Thanks, Evan. I want a quickie I, with Bob. Ugh. Oh, you just interrupted me. All right, Bob, give us a quickie. <laughs> you said it was okay. <laughs> that was a perfect time. That was good. Go. All right, Evan. This week's quickie with Bob. Uh, my title is "Alien Matter Is Infesting Our Solar System." It uh, it all starts with NASA's IBEX spacecraft in orbit around the Earth since 2008. Um, it's been scanning the skies now for almost four years, and it has found elements from outside our solar system, and they're a little off. Normally, such particles can't get into our, into our solar system. The solar wind of the sun puffs out its magnetic field to these monstrous proportions, wrapping our solar system in the heliosphere, which is just like a magnetic bubble that doesn't let nasty things like cosmic rays in. Neutral particles, however, can get in, and this is what the IBEX has detected. But so far, it has detected four extrasolar elements, hydrogen, helium, oxygen, and neon. That last one is especially important because neon is unreactive. It's a noble gas, and there's a lot of it around, so we have lots of good statistics about neon. And so what they did was compare the indigenous neon and oxygen atoms, uh, and they compared them to their counterparts that originated elsewhere in the galaxy. Now, for the latter, they found that for every 20 neon atoms, there was about 74 associated oxygen atoms. But for the homegrown stuff, the stuff that was, in our, that was derived from our solar system, for every 20 neon atoms, there was 111 oxygen atoms. So that means that for every kind of random chunk of space that you might examine near the sun, there's going to be more oxygen compared to a similar chunk that you might take from interstellar space outside of the heliosphere. So why is that? I'll let David uh, McComas uh, who is the principal investigator of IBEX, I'll let him answer that. He said that there are at least two possibilities. Either the solar system evolved in a separate, more oxygen-rich part of the galaxy than, than where we currently reside, or a great deal of critical life-giving oxygen lies trapped in interstellar dust grains or ices, unable to move freely throughout space and thus undetectable by IBEX. So, so we'll benefit from either answer because whichever it is, it's going to allow us to further refine our knowledge, not only about how the solar system formed, but also the life that formed with it. So that was your quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you too. Bob, that was great. Fantastic. Yeah. Do you guys know what the most common element in the Earth's crust is? In the Earth's crust? Iron? No. By weight. Let's go percentage by weight. Aluminum. Yeah, the one that... Aluminum is number three at 8.1%. Wow. I'd say... Uh, say, ca- carbon. Uh, iron? I'd say iron. Iron is number four at 5.0%. Nitrogen. Mm. Nitrogen's not this in the top This is just like 10. family feud. Hydrogen. Not even Wait, close. Wait, where's my periodic Hydrogen. table? It uh, is silicon. Silicon's two, 27.7%. Ooh, I'm Ooh. so close. Yeah. Water. It's no. not an element. No. <laughs> <laughs> not an element. <laughs> uh, oxygen, 46.6%. 
I was so close. <laughs> you were, yes, yes. Just except for those uh, okay. two molecules of hydrogen, you were for, you were right on. Except for the science, yeah, you were good. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. All right, we have time, I think, for a couple of emails this week. The first one comes from Paul Wilde in the UK, and Mr. Wilde writes, Thanks so much for the show. My old granddad raised an interesting question recently. Can evolution be falsified? My initial reaction was, of course it can. But, of course. But of course. But it turned out that no matter how hard I thought about it, I couldn't come up with a way in which it could. So I turned to the web, and the best and only possible falsification that I can understand I could find is this, the discovery of a complete human fossil that is 3 billion years old. You can substitute the specifics, but you get the idea. What are your thoughts? If evolution can't be falsified, should it be discounted or at least somehow relegated as a scientific theory? I think not, but I struggle to find an answer to those that stipulate that science must be falsifiable. So this is one that we hear a lot from the creationists, that that evolution is not falsifiable. What do you guys think about that? Well, it certainly doesn't have to be a complete human skeleton or whatever found. It doesn't have to be human. yeah, it could be, be it could be any any fossil that is found outside like yeah. far outside of its strata with yeah. no explanation. The classic how it answer got there. for that is horses in the Cambrian. It's hard though because you're you're dealing with a theory that that's just so massive that it's it's hard to discount all of that with just one one little discovery. I mean, you might be able to have you might be able to give a piece of it a problem, but there's just so much that you would that you would have to explain you know, in light of this new fact, that it's it's not as easy as just one fact unraveling it. Um, you know what I mean? It's it's a lot more complicated than that because it's such a big, massive theory. It's not just one observation or just one idea. It's just so. It's just a conglomeration of so many different different ideas and observations and and interrelated kind of observations and uh, and theories. You know? Yeah, and that oversimplification of the theory of evolution, I think betrays exactly what the problem is with a lot of creationists. They want there to be one simple answer. They want there to be one sentence in a book that <laughs> we can point to to say that evolution is real, you know, that will completely change their mind. Uh, and, and, you know, on the opposite end, they think that they should be able to come up with one thing that can blow evolution out the of the master water. stroke. And, yeah, they're always looking for the one yeah. thing that completely by itself falsifies evolution. But at the very least, we have to separate evolution into its three main component uh, theories. One is common descent. And what you're talking about with horses in the Cambrian or a human skeleton you know, in the Precambrian layer is that would blow common descent out of the water because you know, that common descent requires that um, species occur in the fossil record in a certain pattern, in a pattern that's compatible with you know, their uh, – species being all species being related to each other and deriving from each other eventually um but the other component is natural selection and that's certainly falsifiable i mean that's a natural selection is a very complicated you know set of ideas about the mechanism of evolution and uh while it is certainly the dominant theory about the mechanism of evolution and and, and has a lot of support evidentiary you know, evidentiary support even you know serious evolutionary scientists not creationists uh, certainly are still questioning whether or not other f- mechanisms might be playing a role and what the relative contribution is of various mechanisms. So I don't think you could just 
and you, you can't just completely discount them or say or confuse natural selection for common descent. And the third component is just what evolved from what, and that is changing all the time. Right, as so we get a new fossil with the specific picture of how things are related to each other changes. Uh, but to get back to the original question, evolution is false. You know, the net, the uh, the fact of evolution, you know, that species derive from each other, common descent, is not only falsified by the existence of a of a clearly out of sequence uh, specimen in the fossil record, but also if, for example, when we did a thorough survey of living creatures in the world, which, you know, although there's still obviously a lot of a lot of creatures we haven't identified, you know, we've identified, what do we say, the, like 10 million different creatures, certainly a lot more than was known about in Darwin's day. We could have found clusters of creatures that had no morphological, genetic, uh, or any other kind of uh, physiological relationship to all other creatures that exist, Right. But we sure. don't find that. We find this lovely branching pattern of morphological relatedness that is completely compatible with evolution. When we, when we find it morphologically, we find it genetically, uh, and we find it when we look at proteins. No matter what level you look at people, at, at uh, living things, we find this branching, relation, this branching pattern of relatedness that you would predict from common descent. And all of those could have potentially, all those lines of evidence could have completely falsified evolution. Yeah, but Steve, would uh, if they did find these pockets of uh, of species that were not were not related uh, in any way, but I don't think that would even necessarily falsify it. I mean, there's, there, you know, that we've talked in the past about how. Uh, you know, there there could be um, you know an alternate genesis of uh, of species that that just just survived and were unrelated to everything else. So I mean, I think it would have been really fascinating to find what what do they call these uh, these species? The stealth or they're just kind of like the hidden hidden species that just, were just not related. They just evolved yeah, then separately there would be, outside there would be a separate of separate line of living things. But right, but I right. wouldn't. But what I'm talking about is like why don't like we don't see something that looks like a mammal but has an extra set of limbs. Right. There's always a derivation. We can always see embryologically, morphologically, how structures evolve. There aren't these extra structures just popping up in different species. We don't see mixtures of morphology. Like we don't see lion with eagle wings, you know, these chimeras from mythology. They don't exist because that you couldn't really explain them uh, evolutionarily. Uh, right, they, they can't occur with evolution. What we do see is evolution constraining the morphology of the creatures that we do see uh, in a very meaningful way, and uh, you know, which, which is yet another you know potential line of of falsification. So, pretty much every aspect of biology could have potentially falsified uh, evolution and instead supported it. Uh, it's not just the fossil record, which that tends to get disproportionate attention, uh, but it's actually not the strongest or the most um, dramatic evidence for evolution. I think personally it's the genetic evidence. You can you know, calculate the odds of the genetics looking like it does if evolution were not true uh, just by random, and it's essentially impossible. You know, it's... Odds are greater than the age of the universe. The only other possibility is a, a capricious you know, deity decided to make the world look exactly as if it had evolved for some reason. There you go. Psych. 
All right, let's let's do one more email. This one comes from Joanna Wintyes. I probably butchered that name from Menlo Park, California, and she writes, "My 13-year-old daughter is being required to wear headgear." to prevent concussion during soccer games and practices. I have researched extensively on PubMed, but cannot find much support that these headbands will prevent concussion. What I have so far, females are more likely to get concussions than males. Properly heading the ball does not cause concussion. Colliding with a person or goal post will give you a concussion. Pro soccer players will show some damage to their heads. I am being told to buy the headgear just to be on the safe side, but I object to doing things for no clear benefit. Can you advise on whether the data supports purchase of soccer headgear for a 13-year-old female to wear during playing and practices? Many thanks for any help. Everyone is either laughing at me or acting as if I do not want my kid to be safe. I do want her safe, but not in a padded cell. All right, so uh, this is a very interesting question. It has to do with... Um, risk versus benefit and, you know, the cautionary principle and what evidence should we require before doing something that seems obvious, like wearing a padded helmet to reduce the risk of head injury uh, during an active sport. But uh, things are not always that simple. And sometimes things that may superficially make sense may even be counterproductive. What what do you think, Rebecca? Well, I was really interested in this because I don't play soccer. I never was any good at it. But I, I've seen this argument come up a lot w- in regards to bikes. A lot of people enjoy arguing that uh, bike helmets aren't worth it, um, mostly because, you know, they say that there's not enough evidence that they uh, t- can't cause more harm in certain sorts of accidents and also evidence that they, you know, reduce the likelihood that people will bike, uh, you know, so they... They sort of, um, they, they take away biking's health benefits, things like that. So, yeah, I find it really interesting. So I, I started looking into the facts and Joanna sent along a few good links to get me started. Um, so here's kind of a quick overview of what I found. Um, most soccer injuries involve the feet and legs, of course, but a lot of kids injure their face and heads playing soccer, and a lot of those injuries are concussions. Concussions make up probably about 2 to 3% of all injuries, which is the same rate as American football. And of course, we make American football players wear helmets, uh, especially little kids. Joanna linked to one study of adolescents in Oakville, Canada, that showed a pretty shocking 47.8% of kids experienced symptoms of a concussion during the previous year, which I found quite horrific. Uh, so a lot of the data seems to suggest that head injuries might be pretty common amongst young soccer players, so it's understandable that people would want to do something about it. The Canadian study found that 52.8% of all the kids who didn't wear helmets suffered a concussion, compared to 26.9% of kids who did wear headgear, and more girls than boys were injured. Joanna also linked to a study from 2008 that looked at sex differences in 44 college players who wore helmets. And that study showed that when performing headers, which is, you know, bonking the ball with your head, the men were protected by the helmets, but the women showed a 10% increase in head acceleration, which is linked to brain injury. However, the numbers were far below what one what would usually be required for injury to occur. 
Um, the balls they were throwing at the people's heads were relatively low speed. Um, the researchers think that wearing the helmet encourages players to hit the ball harder, which is something called risk homeostasis or risk compensation. Uh, and that's studied across all kinds of sports. And it's also one of the things that are bro- that's brought up in terms of bike helmets. Some people claim that wearing bike helmets encourages riskier behavior. Whether that is true or not is uh, a topic of quite dis- quite a lot of discussion. Um, that comes up in a lot of contexts. I remember that issue coming up with SUVs when people thought that oh SUVs are safer vehicles that, that therefore because they're in a you know in a big vehicle so they drive more recklessly and get into more accidents. Yeah, I think there are, there are some areas where risk homeostasis is a real thing, and I think there are other areas where people assume it is because it's a factor in other areas, but there's not necessarily. Um, a lot to back it up. So this study does suggest that there is some amount of risk compensation when it comes to soccer players and helmets. And they think that both sexes are compensating for the safety offered by the helmets, but women were more at risk due to their lower head mass and neck strength. So after hearing about that study, you might think that helmets wouldn't be of much use to girls. However, Remember that that study was actually looking at headers, which aren't, in fact, the cause of any immediately recognizable brain injury, like Joanna mentioned in her email. The most common cause of concussion is not from heading the ball, but is actually from bonking heads with another player. The second most common cause of concussion is from having a ball kicked straight into your melon. Uh, so something that happens accidentally, your head just gets in the way and you take it you know, pretty hard um, because people can kick balls pretty quickly, pretty, pretty fast. So in these situations, there wouldn't be any risk compensation, just the player's head accidentally colliding with something at a high speed. And in that case, the data does show that helmets can increase safety uh, because they wouldn't be compensating for the risk. One more brief note about heading the ball. There have been studies that suggest that even properly heading a ball constantly for a long period of time can have some nasty effects. One study found that among adult soccer players in Norway who have played since they were children and who haven't had a severe head injury caused by a non-soccer injury, 81% showed mild to severe deficits in attention, concentration, and memory. Players who headed the ball more frequently had higher rates of cognitive loss. And there's been at least one other study that suggested that kids might be injured heading the ball on a regular basis at a younger age. However, Joanna linked to another well-controlled study of 240 college players that found no significant mental impairments, despite an average of about 15 years playing soccer. So I couldn't find many other studies on heading, and so I'm willing to say that the jury is still out on that. So to sum up my feelings on the data, speaking as a non-scientist, non-medical professional who doesn't have kids, (laughs) who doesn't play soccer, and admittedly is a bit annoyed by the present day sort of overly protective society, it looks to me like helmets are probably a good idea for kids playing soccer. And also maybe they shouldn't go crazy on the headers when they're very young. But 
honestly, even if you don't make your kid wear a helmet, he or she is probably still going to be way healthier than a kid who doesn't run around playing games at all. Ah, good point. So, yeah, you're probably still not a terrible parent, even if you choose not to slap a helmet on your kid. But, yeah, from from the data I looked at today, um, it seems to me that, you know, it, it probably is worth playing it safe if you can afford a helmet. Yeah, that was kind of my sense, too. I think the header issue is probably a red herring, largely. People focus on that because it's something about – it's the only sport – you know, where you actually deliberately engage the ball with your head. Right. So people focus on that, but there, the data is ambiguous. Yeah. But it's actually the bigger risk is from other head injuries, head, you know, head to, to, to head other, to, head to head, head, head to body. Yeah. Yeah. Head um, to head and head to ball, but the head to ball is purely accidental. They're, yeah, the ball being thrown at somebody's head and they're not, yeah. they're not prepared for it, so they're not stabilized. One of the studies I saw on concussions said that zero concussions were caused by heading and all of them were caused by head to head or head to ball uh, accidentally. All right. Well, thanks for the interesting question. Well, let's move on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. You guys want to hear the theme? Not really. All right. We'll go with Rebecca's way. You guys can figure out. I know. I was being sarcastic. Oh, too bad. Yeah. Here we go. I don't know what programmers have created a computer program that can score 150 on a standard IQ test. Item number two. Programmers have developed software that can monitor video chat in real time and accurately detect deception and other emotions in the target. And item number three, forensic scientists have developed a system for identifying unknown skulls by computer comparison to pictures of living people. Rebecca, why don't you go first this week? All right, let me guess. The theme is squirrels. (laughs) Squirrels, that's correct. These all have to do with squirrels. (laughs) Uh, The theme is news items I have not read this week. (laughs) That's Uh, always the theme. (laughs) I try to make it a theme everywhere. That's true. You've been getting better at that, actually. Okay. A computer program that can score up in 150. The game. Always up in the game. On a standard IQ test. Yeah, 150. That's easy enough. We've all done that. <laughs> IQ. I'm trying, I'm trying to think of what goes into IQ tests. And most IQ tests aren't some brilliant scheme for deducing intelligence. It's just just a test you can study for if you can study for it you can certainly program a computer to pass one so that makes sense to me um software that can monitor video chat in real time and accurately detect deception and other emotions in the target now that's tricky because we do have certain ways of detecting deception in people however those those techniques are highly inaccurate. And, you know, uh, most of the best clues we have for detecting deception aren't visual. They are more auditory. They are based on what the person is saying, how they're describing certain events, for instance. It's been shown that that visual tics that we're all taught, like the subject rubbing his nose 
means he's lying, that sort of thing. Those are highly inaccurate. So I'm suspicious of that one. Um, a system for identifying unknown skulls by computer comparison to pictures of living people. That makes sense to me. You know, we already have security cams in Vegas casinos that can accurately match up faces. Uh, and plus, I saw it once on Bones. So I'm pretty sure that that already exists in the Bones universe, which means it's only a matter of time before it exists here, I'm sure. I'm going to go with uh, video chat accurately detecting deception. I That one's just too bizarro for me to believe. Okay, Jay. Okay, these all three have to do with software or programmers. Correct. You get bonus points for that. Thank you. Damn it. The first one's about the uh, 150 on the standard IQ. As much as I thought I was relatively familiar with an IQ test, now that I think about it, I'm not that familiar with it. I know that it, on a basic level what it's judging people on. I also know that 150 on an IQ test is pretty serious. Huh, that's interesting, but I guess I, I, because I'm not crystal clear on what it's judging you on and if there'd be a significant difference between the way that answers are answered as opposed to it just answering factually because it might be contextually that could have an impact on that and that's interesting but i wouldn't doubt that at this point programmers uh the second one about the programmers developing software about monitoring video chat and seeing if it could detect deception or other emotions in the target i don't disagree with rebecca's assessment on that and i, I just think it's very difficult for people to even detect other people's emotions accurately sometimes and you know software to do it is just it's a very difficult thing and it's not like you didn't mention anything about it reading blood pressure or any of that stuff and even though even if it were we know today that you know you need a baseline in order to to determine if there's even any real effect and even then it's not that accurate so that's that's a that's a pretty big thing you're saying there steve so i'm not sure about that one and then the last one about the forensic scientist being able to identify unknown skulls I don't know. You ever see someone that just has like, like jowls? You know, that's all soft tissue. You don't see a skull with jowls. You know, I I don't. Re- you know, and as funny as that is, that's I, I'm serious too because that doesn't come across. But maybe it's still maybe, maybe there's indications. You know, maybe it looks where the chin is and whatnot. I don't know though. I don't know about that one, Steve. So I I will go with Rebecca and say that the one about the video chat situation that is bs okay bob all right computer program 150 you know i keep going back to um to the watson computer that did so well on that game show trying to think that uh similar technology would allow a computer to do that well and yeah jay i'm not like jay i'm not i'm not really familiar with with uh iq tests and exactly what kind of questions they ask so that's hindering me and coming to a conclusion for this one, but um, the, for the third one, um, now Steve, you've got this unknown skull, and then I'm kind of a little confused about what living people you're talking about. What's the relation? You know what I mean? If you've got the skull, how do you know what living people to compare it to? That is a very good question. Okay, bastard. All right, I'm going to leave that one for now. The second one, yeah, I've got a problem with this one a bit too, uh, primarily because of real time. I think doing this in real time would be really difficult and 
And of course, the uh, you know video chat is you know notoriously low res. I'm assuming it's just a conventional video chat. It's not really very high res. I think that might be a factor. You know, but there, I'm confused about this one. I mean, there are ways to determine if somebody's being deceptive. You know, just in terms of how many times they use like the word "I" or or how verbose they are. People who lie tend to be less verbose, and that's that kind of stuff is amenable to to software in, uh, that monitors video chat. So, yeah, I think you could using uh, biometrics, you could yeah, you could look at a skull and then look at a person, and and you could I think you'd be possible to determine. Uh, if that skull belonged to a person similar to that, maybe somebody, you know, a relative or, yeah, but God, I'm not sure about. I think I'll go with the video chat. The real time, I think, is what sells that one to, to me and to do it accurately and, and emotions. Oof. This is, yeah, I guess I'll, just, I'll go with that one. Say that one is fiction, video chat. Evan, your turn. You don't expect me to kind of stay out in the cold and guess against everyone else, right? I mean, that would just kind of. That would be brave. I'm not that brave this week, and I'll spare every spare everyone the lengthy, lengthy thoughts Too rolling late. around in What's my head. What's your answer? <laughs> I'm going to go with Rebecca J. Bob. GWRBJ. <laughs> they haven't failed me yet. All right, so we'll take these in order, I suppose. Item number one, programmers have created a computer program that can score 150 on a standard IQ test. You all think that one is science. And yeah, you know, the key to that one is knowing what kind of tasks are involved in the standard IQ test. For example, pattern recognition, things that computers are not traditionally good at, seeing what a group of items have in common because there's some abstract theme to them. For example, like knowing that all three of these items were about computer programs. And computers generally score around in the 80s. Even, you know, um, artificial intelligence software designed to do well on those tests can only get up to the 80s. But this one is science because computer programmers have sort of broken through and found algorithms that do allow computers to do much better than ever before on standardized IQ tests, specifically because of finding... um, coming up with pattern recognition algorithms that allow them to, to perform that those kinds of tasks. This is an MIT researchers that did this, not, not surprising, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So rather than examining data in a more linear fashion or just comparing it to a database, it, the algorithm allows it to look at it from multiple different angles and, mm. and, and to begin to see like the features that it, have, that, it, that it possesses in common and then use that to derive the category or the best fitting structure, for example, to, you know, uh, to the data. So it's, it's a new approach to artificial intelligence, and this should help you know, drive artificial intelligence software forward. So that is, that is a pretty big breakthrough, actually. It's a pretty big Sweet. jump you know, from scoring in the 80s to 150. Fantastic, Matt. Fantastic. Let's go on to number two. Programmers have developed software that can monitor video chat in real time and accurately detect deception and other emotions in the target you all think this one is the fiction. Bob, you're caught up on the real-time aspect of this. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because it has actually nothing to do with why this is the fiction. Hooray! Yay! Um, yeah. I'm so happy. Yay. Right, right for the wrong no. reasons. Love it. The headline of the real news item was Lovelorn Liars Leave Linguistic Leads. So this is about detecting deception. Uh, but as I think Rebecca and Bob both hit upon, this is more about detecting deception by the word choices that people make. And it's not in video, yeah. but it's in profiles that people leave on online dating services. And they essentially came up with a way of analyzing 
uh, the the profiles and using coming up with a, a ascertainment of how deceptive the person is. And it does, Bob. You hit upon some like how often do they use the word I? How much in, oh, yeah, how much yeah. specific information do they give? If they don't give a lot of physical descriptions of themselves, then that suggests that maybe the picture that they have of themselves is deceptive. It's not it's not an accurate portrayal of reality. Uh, or if they here's another one, if they flip language. If instead of say, instead of describing themselves as happy, they describe themselves as not sad, that's a sign of being deceptive. Mm. Who does that? I don't know. Liars. I'm not sad. Everybody, not gonna kill you. <laughs> I'm not sad. <laughs> yeah. So that that one was fiction, but the real one's real story was was interesting as well. But yeah, just you know, from video, it was the key that they're the, the computers analyzing the video and doing the lie to me kind of thing of looking at how people's. Facial expressions are are moving, et cetera. That that's that's fiction, which means that forensic scientists have developed a system for identifying unknown skulls by computer comparison to pictures of living people is science. Cool. Fantastic, Matt. Once again, I think you guys underestimated how difficult this task was and how much of a breakthrough it was. <laughs> Whatever, Steve. Good Bob, job, everybody. Steve, Bob, once Good. again, I think <laughs> similar to last week, you were overly impressed with. The way things are portrayed on TV. Well, you just can't damn help but be a jackass. I, hey, you sweep me. I've got to <laughs> yeah, come up with yeah, something. Yeah, even when right? we beat him. <laughs> right? I need yeah. something. So anyway, the problem is that there actually – I don't watch TV. – isn't a good correlation between – and uh, actually, Jay, I think you said that like there, there's not a lot of correlation between the way the skin hangs on the skull and, and the – Yes, I did. – the bony you know, prominences itself. Uh, so if you look at – the landmarks, like those very specific points on the skull, and then you compare them to the the soft tissue that that overlies it, you know, the the skin and muscle. The old methods of making that of uh, extrapolation actually are, are very inaccurate. And I think it was Bob who said, "You look at the picture; does doesn't yeah. really look a lot like what they what the uh, what was reconstructed." So what what these researchers did was they did a systematic analysis of skulls and pictures of living people in order to compare how the skin and muscle relates to the bone. And Bob, you asked about how how could they do that? How could they compare skulls with living people? They did CAT scans and did a 3D virtual reconstruction of the skull and then used the virtual skull as the source and then compared that to the, the key features sort of landmarks on the, the picture of the person on the face of, you know, based upon a picture to the landmarks on the skull. And they use that to develop the relationship between yeah. what the person looks like and what their skull looks like. But you said unknown skulls. So then they applied it to an unknown, a real oh, case. okay. Which, of course, right. if you don't close the loop on that, then, uh, then you don't know how useful it is. And in the, in the follow-up study, they actually did apply it to an unknown it's hard to know from you know from the resources that I read exactly how far they've taken this because I get the feeling that it's being oversold a little bit. But you know, like what, you know, I, one um, part of the of an article I read about it said that it was as accurate as DNA analysis, but I really couldn't find anything to justify that uh. statement. It may be true, but I just don't know. Uh, but what it but it is, however. Or, or potentially can be a, f- a relatively quick and inexpensive method for analyzing a skull and then comparing it to possible people that it could be belong to, missing persons, etc. 
Um, and also could be very useful in excluding people, not saying this is the person that it matches, but this really can't be the person that this skull belongs to, and therefore saving expensive DNA analysis for that person, right? So it could narrow the field of people that you would then do confirmatory tests on, like DNA analysis. So it would, it would just be one more tool in the toolkit, and much better than the reconstructions that were previously done because now there's some pr- pretty objective data comparing pictures of actual people of known targets to, you know, again, the 3D reconstructions of their skull. And also because they were just using uh, live, you know, volunteers as subjects, they were able to do 500 people. So probably it would be probably difficult to do that from unknown forensic cases, you know, take a long time to gather those cases, but... Good job, everybody. Yep, good job, everyone. Yep. <laughs> to us. Wow, Jay. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of the program. We have nothing left to do at this Suddenly. point. Suddenly, yes. I have a quote over here, okay? All People right, right. want to hear the quote. Oh, that's right, the quote. Rebecca, wasn't it Darwin Day not too long ago? Yes, it was. Have you ever heard of Charles Darwin? doesn't ring a bell. Is he Bob Darwin's brother? On the origin of species, perhaps? Didn't he write books on barnacles? Well, here's a quote from from that book. I think you guys should read it. (laughs) Charles Darwin said, It is a truly wonderful fact, the wonder of which we are apt to overlook from familiarity, that all animals and all plants throughout all time and space should be related to each other in group subordinate to group. Charles Darwin! That was sent in by Chris Friedrich. Friedrich. F-R-I-E-D-R-I-C-H. Friedrich. Speaking of Germans, I'm going to be in Germany, and that's an announcement I would like to make now. I will be doing a couple of conferences. First, I'm going to be at the Women in Secularism Conference uh, run by CFI in uh, Washington, D.C. Well, technically, I think it's in Arlington, Virginia, but that's Friday, May 18th through Sunday, May 20th. Uh, I will be there on Friday and Saturday, a bit of Saturday, because on Saturday I fly to the Sixth World Skeptics Conference in Berlin, Germany. That's May 18th to 20th. And uh, the following week I will be in Cologne with many of my atheist friends at the uh, AAI conference. That is May 25th through 27th. So I hope to see some of you there. At one of those places. Flugen is German for fly. Thank you, Evan. Now I just need to know, bring me a pint of your finest beer, please. Well, thanks for joining me, everyone, this week. Hey, thank you, Steve. Thanks, dearly. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. <laughs>